Welcome to Sounding History, a podcast about music, history, climate change, and culture. I'm Chris Smith from Texas Tech University in the USA. And I'm Tom Irvine from the University of Southampton in the UK. This is a podcast about the global history of music with a twist. Our history is not shaped around famous performers, composers, and works, but rather as reflections upon the relationship between sound and the exploitation of Earth's resources. Today, scientists and historians alike argue that around the year 1500 of the Common Era, human extraction of natural resources began to change the climate itself. They call this new era the Anthropocene. With the Anthropocene came capitalism and the globalization of many aspects of human culture, along with settler colonialism, mass enslavement, and environmental destruction. We explore how processes like these have shaped 500 years of history and the worlds of sound we occupy today. Concentrating on three core categories, labor, energy, and data, we seek new, different, and challenging stories about music on a global scale. What shaped the world in which we find ourselves? Who are its many voices? We invite you to join us as we unpack why sound is, when, and for whom. So let's begin. Musica Antigua Cologne, performing Music Baluli from the opera Xerxes. The actual CD is the soundtrack of a kind of silly movie about Louis XIV and Luli called Le Roi Danse from the year 2000. Why have we picked this for today? Well, music at the court of Louis XIV. I think listeners might be able to imagine something about Louis XIV, right? The Sun King was closely tied to the display of political power. And the story of Lully and Louis XIV, which to be fair, you can find out about by watching that silly movie. It's a story of a close partnership and closer than we might normally expect a partnership to be between a composer and his patron. Because Lully and Louis XIV actually knew each other very well as dancers. If we think about this relationship between these two guys, the one, a poor Italian boy, made his way to Paris, one of the great cities of Europe. The other, the future king of France. We think about these two guys, they had a relationship because they danced together. And they danced together because at that time, it was expected that the king and the high nobility participate in musical productions as dancers. And obviously, the people who made this music then became quite important because they were creating stuff, right, for the king to dance to. And Lully was an ambitious young man, right, and he wanted to make it at the court. And he realized that by coming coming into the court as a dancer, violinist, composer, that would maximize his chances. And he was such a good dancer that he was quickly allowed into the group of dancers that included the young king. It's amazing to think of times and places in which the capacity to dance was regarded not just as a desirable social skill or a fun activity, but literally a way to re-inscribe or to transform one's own social class. 
that you could dance meant that you were in, in West Africa in tune with the world and your place in the world. And here at the court of Louis XIV, it was literally a way to embody an ideal of empire. Right. Embody an idea of power. And the center of power is the, is the body of the king. The king and France, one body. And as musicians, sometimes we're conditioned to think about music, especially what you might call classical music. And I suppose people listening to this might think, oh, that was classical music, right? We might think of that as something that happens in concert halls. And that's where it does happen nowadays, including this music most of the time, where you have a kind of distance between the audience and what's going on, kind of an aesthetic contemplation going on. But th this music was created for something completely different. It was a soundtrack of power. It was a soundtrack of power that put the king in the center, the physical center of the stage, people dancing around him. And if you're the composer in this partnership, you are the, you're like the, the John Williams or the, you know, of this giant propaganda machine, all built around around one person. And the partnership that they put together was hugely important in music history. So like when I was in graduate school, and probably you too, Chris, you know, we were taught about the tragédie en musique or tragédie lyrique, the genres that came up out of this partnership and how important they were and how even after Lully died in 1687, the tragédie en musique held a central place in French musical culture and how all the composers in the 18th century in France were arguing with each other about what to do about this genre and whether they should compose, continue to compose in it like Rameau did, or whether they should come up with new genres like Rousseau. We're going to have a great episode about Rousseau at some point, right? And that's our music history, but we forget that that's not how it really was in history. These things were not created as autonomous artworks that people would be thinking about later. But, and the only thing, the only comparison I can think of for listeners who might be coming to this with fresh ears is that we, you know, we recently had an inauguration in the United States, which was of, it was fraught with certain other, it was an important moment in the history of the Republic, right? And it was choreographed, right? There was Lady Gaga. And there's this moment when the president is inaugurated, that's always happens in, on these things, where the band plays Hail to the Chief, right? Which is just a marching tune from the 1840s or something. That I think I once heard, sorry, we, we digress slightly here, but I once heard that Hail to the Chief was written because the president for whom it was written, William Henry Harrison, was so um, boring and bland looking. They needed something to tell the people that he was in the room. Yeah, it's the semiotic of the semiotic of what would become the great tropes of film music. Like this music is telling you how you are supposed to perceive this visual spectacle. This visual spectacle and this moment of the transfer of power, right, is then put into music. So we all know what that means. And there's something happening there. We don't think, oh, Hail to the Chief is a great piece of music. We're like, oh, that's a signal or a piece of semiosis, like you were saying, right, that tells us about power. Now, that's what Lully is always about. It's constantly that. And I think that we have to get ourselves out of the, when we're thinking about it historically, we need to get out of the, our distanced way of looking at the artwork of music and think about what it was in, you know, in its time, sort of a real political, a political soundtrack. Anyway, I wanted to, I, I picked this because there's, I wanted to talk about political power and music and empire. And I was thinking a little bit about the global connections here, because these actually are, are often missed when we talk about Louis XIV. Louis XIV was like a war king, 
right? The entire reign was taken up with having you know, wars with people or resting from having wars with people or preparing for having wars with people. Yeah, it's a great locution to say he was a war king. But can you unpack that for us? Say, you know, what was the, we talk about empire and we say, okay, most of us would agree that empires typically ensue because someone is willing to make war to accrue territory or to centralize power. But beyond the court, beyond the court dances, beyond the ballets in which the sun king would literally appear as the sun at the center of the ballet stage, what's the motivation for this? Is it purely imperial hubris or are there economic considerations? Are there labor and energy considerations? Why is he a war king? Okay, so European History 101, I'm going to give this one my best shot, right? I think there's two things going on here. I mean, the first thing is that most of these wars are matters of dynastic succession. So it's about the bloodline of the king, the power of of this uh, dynasty controlling this geographic area. And we'll talk in a minute about the war of Spanish succession, which is the big, the big Louis XIV war. And they're also about, in a more modern sense, right? So that dynastic succession stuff that had been going on in, in the early modern period, but also in, in the middle, medieval period and ancient times really that had been going on for a very long time and in Europe and elsewhere. I think what's happening in, in the 17th century, though, is there's also uh, an added extra, which is some of the dynastic property comes with, you know, global possessions. And it's about jockeying for a place in, in the global economy. And the global economy is based around the extraction of resources at this point. So the extraction of raw materials in, let's say, Mesoamerica, Central and South America, and the rights to transport those raw materials around, and the labor that's required to get at those raw materials. So that's why this makes a good case study for us. To extract, to transport, and to transform. Right. The labor to extract, transport, and transform. Transform sugar, sugar cane into sugar. Right. Transform silver ore into court books in Florence. And that's a story for another day. Okay, so I'm with you now. So these multimedia productions, these extravagandas, these theatricalizations of power at the court, how does that play into the global messaging? I don't think it's a global messaging so much as a, it's quite a local messaging, right? Because it's not like these things are being broadcast on, you know, French public television, 1665, right? This is, there is a center of power in France, in Versailles or in Paris. And that is where these multi, multimedia events happen. And the king needs constantly to underscore, it's not a democracy, his power, the doctrine is that his power is is granted from, you know, the divine right of kings, but his power is also held onto by the fact that he's the center of the court, and he needs to keep his as as always is in these situations. He needs to keep his potential enemies near nearby, and they come and you know one of the one of the ways they do that is by needing to come to these multimedia entertainments. The connection out to the world is is more that what's at stake in these power struggles is access to these sources of labor and energy. <laughs> and so the one I was thinking about when we put this together was the War of Spanish Succession. Now, Lully had been dead for a while. And by the way, Lully really did die as a result of stabbing himself in the foot while conducting. Okay, we've, okay. we've got to unpack that one for a moment. Um, because if you don't know the, if you don't have the peculiarly morbid historical curiosity that said exactly how did Lully stab himself in the foot? It's really an anecdote that in a very Monty Python-esque way bears telling. So tell us the anecdote. 
Well, I mean, so Lully was conducting in a in a liturgical setting after having fallen out with Louis the Fourteenth because he did towards the end of his life, and they fell out in a in a typical kind of court scandalous fashion, as often happens between between minions who've grown older and their and their old their former masters. It had to do with Lully's homosexuality, which caused the scandal, and that was the pretense for uh, Louis the Fourteenth to withdraw his patronage uh, to Lully and give it to other composers. But by that time, Lully had really established himself as creator of the king's music. And yes, so Lully was working for another noble person, noble family in in France, still quite close to the center of power. And he was uh, not belaboring the point. There wasn't such a thing as an orchestra conductor. But Lully tended to keep order in in performances by banging a, a stick on the floor. And so that would make a sound. And he banged the stick through his foot. And um, the wound became gangrenous, and several. It took him several months to die, but then he did. In this conducting accident, I guess you'd call it. <laughs> That's <of>, terrible. <laughs> shades of sorry. Shades of bizarre conducting accident. Sh- shades of shades of this is uh, Spinal Tap, right? A classic, another classic. Maybe not on our list of discussion topics, but anyway, you know, like he died in a tragic accident. Lully had been dead for a while when, in 1701, France went to war with lots of other countries around who would become the next king of Spain. And the issue at, at hand was what everybody agreed that the next king of Spain was probably going to be Louis XIV's grandson, Philip V of Spain. But the question was whether how close his relationship would be to France, you know, whether France and Spain could kind of have a, uni- a unified crown or whether France could add Spain you know, to that envelope, whatever you want to call it, that France was. And of course, Spain came with quite a lot of overseas possessions. And Spain also came with, with an interesting business arrangement called the Asiento. And the business arrangement was the Spanish didn't have any possessions in West Africa. So they had no way to enslave people and then transport them to their own colonies in Central and South America. So they they usually farmed this out, sometimes to private companies, the Dutch East India Company, semi-private companies. The Royal Africa Company, which was a British company, was founded partially to compete for the Asiento, and sometimes to countries. And so from 1701, France had the Asiento. And so had France kept it, because France lost the Asiento at the end of this War of Spanish succession and was taken on by the British. Had France kept it, I think that the history of the Black Atlantic would have been slightly different and slightly less English-speaking. And I was surprised when I, when I put this into my, you know, when I was thinking about this, I was surprised to think about, wow, Lully. And, you know, it's really just one step from Lully to the traffic, this traffic in people that so shaped this era. And so just, just to kind of wrap it up, then, you've got this moment in 1714 when France loses. Louis XIV kind of loses his last big war. It's the Treaty of Utrecht. There's a bunch of stuff that happens, like the House of Hanover is then legitimized as the as the ruling house in Britain, and parts of Canada become British and not French. And this is the, this, but one of the, I think one of the a, a crucial shift was the movement of the right to move enslaved people from West Africa to Spanish America from French hands to. British hands. And that really sets the, sets the stage for the what we call the Black Atlantic, which is a big driver of musical expressive cultures that we're focusing on in lots of different ways across the whole book project and across the podcast. So it's really only one step from this dance. And I think 
what we're trying to demonstrate here is how nothing, nothing in music history remains untouched by these larger forces. That's an amazing story and sobering, but also kind of empowering because it reminds us in this project, as Tom was saying, for both the big book and also this podcast, that our very central part of our critical stance is that music is not separate from other elements, networks, considerations of labor and energy and data throughout the tides of global history throughout the Anthropocene. So Lully, Lully and the music of Lully and the dancing body of Louis XIV are not separate from the music that we're going to hear next. Okay, so now we're going to move on. And what have you got for us, Chris? Well, this is music that tallies on very eloquently, I think, with what you've been telling us about Lully at the court of Louis XIV and thereafter, and the embodiment of a vision of empire in the body of Louis XIV and in the music of Jean-Baptiste Lully. And it tails on really effectively with this music that I have cued for us right now, which is the West African jellies or praise singers, Siddiqui Jabate and Jelamari Sisuko, with an excerpt of the imperial epic of Sunjata. just been listening to the Kora Master Siddiqui Jabate, accompanied by Jelamari Sisako, with a short excerpt of a very long epic song poem called the Sunjata Epic, which memorializes the exploits of the first great emperor of the Mali Empire in the 15th century in West Africa. In other words, this is another piece of music which celebrates the exploits of an imperial visionary. Um, Sunjata, who engaged throughout much of his adult life in this act of empire building, but in sub-Saharan West Africa. And so this is just before the encounter between European colonizers heading outward from Europe and in this sort of global dash for colonial possessions and colonial resources. It's a consolidating nation building by Sunjata and his son, Mandemiso, in West Africa just before the encounter. But the encounter is going to come, and it's going to come right around or just before the time of the Asiento, and it's going to fuel the trade and enslave people that give us, as Tom said, the Black Atlantic. Yeah, Chris, I just wondered if you could set the stage for us just a little bit broader. Like, let's take one more step back. So we're in sub-Saharan West Africa, but what does that mean? What kind of languages are being spoken there? What are the, what's, what are the religions? And it's not true, is it, that there was no contact between Africa and, and Europe there was always something going on, but it changed in its quantity and its quality around this time. Is that the right way to say it? I'd say it changed in its quality, its quantity, its engines, and its technology. Because you're absolutely right, Tom. There had been contact between, let's say, the Mediterranean, especially the Mediterranean and Sub-Saharan Africa, since the Middle Ages, really, when in the wake of the outward reach of Islam from Asia Minor in the 7th and 8th century, and the Islamization of North Africa, 
Berber and then Arab traders established routes that let them cross from the Mediterranean ports of uh, Tunis and of Fez, that let them cross the Sahara, that navigate the Sand Sea to reach the headwaters of rivers that would sub-Saharan Africa that flowed west to the western coast. And the trade was primarily in gold and salt. It was really the trade in enslaved peoples comes later. But the trade routes were already well established. And as you say, Tom, one of the two principal sources we have for accounts of these West African empires is the accounts by Arabic-speaking scholars who traveled along these trade routes and reported and recorded what they saw. And so it's it's an existing network of trade routes, and we've got maps, and we'll put those in the show notes and that kind of thing. And it's happening primarily between the Mediterranean, especially the Arabic Mediterranean, and Sub-Saharan Africa. So I'm thinking this is actually brings in the third of our key terms, right? This is about data. So trade routes carry people, and they carry stuff. They carry objects and, and resources, but they also carry information. And I'm kind of interested in also the, just to come back to the music, right? The music is a narrative music, a storytelling music. In a sense, it's a carrier of data. Absolutely. So Siddiqui Jabate, Jabate is he's a noted player of the kora, the 21-string harp lute. It's called a harp because it has a rank of strings that are tuned to separate, to independent pitches. They're not fretted like a guitar or, or, or fingered like a violin, but they're played like a harp. And they're played with both hands in this sort of polyrhythmic fashion. So one hand plays one rhythm and one hand plays the other rhythm. And it's called a, a lute because its resonating cavity is a gourd with a skin face. Now, we've, we'll talk more about instruments that are gourd resonators with skin faces, like the banjos that are hanging behind me in my own music room. But the chorus is this combination of a harp lute. And it is the emblematic it and the balafon, the xylophone. It's the emblematic instrument of the hereditary class of praise singers called jelly. In the Mande language, jelly, J-E-L-I, J-E-L-I-A, J-E-L-I-Y-A-T is the plural, jellyat, the jelly. It's a word which is the, the correct word from the, the Mande language, which gets transliterated by the French colonizers and explorers, and they call them griot, G-R-I-O-T, the praise singer. But the jelly were really more than just praise singers. That was their job. They were supported by the nobility. They were patronized. They had patrons. But they were also genealogists, people who remembered and could recite the genealogy of nobles and kings. They were lawgivers. They could adjudicate legal disputes. They were often healers of either physical or psychological afflictions because they carried that memory. So they had an immense amount of social power. And the reason they had so much social power is because West Africa, by and large, was an oral, oral set of linguistic traditions. In other words, it was not primarily a place in which writing carried data, Tom. Instead, it was a place in which the memory of highly trained specialists carried data. And so the jelly were very, very important people because they remembered laws, they remembered inheritance, they, they remembered predictions of the future. They were able to diagnose and suggest cures for physical and psychological ailments. They were actually also regarded as somewhat fearful individuals, individuals who could elicit fear because so much social power was attributed to them that a jelly who was feeling unappreciated, underappreciated by her or his patron might make a mocking song that would literally cause that tight-fisted patron to become ill or have bad luck. 
So it's this ancient, ancient trope that shows up in lots of world cultures where the musician is respected and valued for her or his technical, especially memory skills. Like, we don't know where the boundary lies, lines lie or who's inheriting from who. But also a little bit feared because if you cross that, you know, they're kind of marginalized figures, they're kind of protean figures, they're not really trusted. And at times they're a little bit feared. So there's this very complex balancing act. Yeah. So I want to be duly cautious about energetic comparisons between <laughs> between cultures that are different places and have different relationships to us right now. So there's like, we absolutely cannot not remember when we're talking about this, that Luli's music becomes part of the Western art music tradition, which is very much associated with the white middle classes and upper classes in, in and the singers who later are called griot that you're talking about is very much a matter of, of the black American vernacular or the black Atlantic vernacular. And we need to keep that in mind, keeping that in mind and all the power relations that go with it. I just wanted to run a little comparison between these singers and their relationship with patronates and Luli and his relationship. And in a way, what I want to say about Luli is what this early modern African way of thinking about the role of music could inspire us to do is to review our notion of what was going on in France because Lully is pretty much like the official power storyteller to the king and the tragedia musique. So hear me out, I'm almost there, right? The tragedia musique is a kind of storytelling genre which always goes the same way, always begins with a prologue about the king and then it's got a bunch of dramatic actions divided into three acts usually each act ending with a dance where the king in his younger days would have been participating. And then there's some sort of epilogue. This music, which then becomes part of our uh, Western art music tradition, we forget that its origin was really very, at least in its function, forgive me, music sociologists, I'm oversimplifying this, I understand. At least in its function, bears some comparison, right, with what's going on in the African courts, same time, a thousand kilometers to the south. Yeah, we're talking about the performance of imperial power, the recognition of imperial power, the performance of imperial power, the reinscription of that power, a way of saying power inheres within the body of this ruler and flows outward. What happens is that these two visions of what it means to carry data collide in the Black Atlantic. Because up to that time in the, the Ghana Empire, the various these are all empires that were based around control of resources in Central and West Africa, in what we now call Senegambia, the modern nations of Ghana. There was a Ghana Empire. There was a Mali Empire. There was a Songhai Empire, successively. Really before there was much European presence, not contact. There was contact, as we've said always, between the coastal towns of Tunis and Fez, on the trans-Saharan trade routes that the Arab and Berber traders maintained to the trailheads in what's now northern Senegal in places like Gao and Timbuktu. And those trailheads led to rivers, and the rivers tended to flow west. So there is absolutely a trade in gold and salt and later in enslaved peoples across the Sahara to the great rivers like the Niger River and the Senegal River that flow west to the Atlantic. And it's really in the Western Atlantic that Europeans... The Western Europeans who, who arrive with the Portuguese, so around 1500, give or take, marks a change in the way that these systems are meeting each other. So I'm interested in what you mean by competing data systems. Yeah, absolutely. We have what I'm going to call two zones of imperial contestation, 
right? We have a zone of imperial contestation that emerges from Europe and a zone of imperial contestation that emerges from West, that is emerging, emergent in West Africa. They both have many of the appurtenances of empire. They seek to centralize. They seek to celebrate the imperial status of the ruler or the ruling dynasty in both cases. Their visions of and their means of manifesting technology are different. The navigation technologies speak about about transport. The navigation technology that fuels the West African empires is the capacity to navigate the Sahara. The navigation technology that fuels the European empires is the capacity to plot and execute routes primarily by deep water sailing, which is why the, one of the reasons why the Portuguese are some of the first to arrive on the coast of West Africa. It's a small nation, but they had highly developed navigation technology. And they also had a second technological advantage, which actually fueled the trade in enslaved peoples as well, was they had ships which were essentially mobile gun platforms. That's what the early modern warship was. It was a mobile gun platform. It was a way to move cannon via water and bring those cannon to bear like landborne artillery. And so when these West African imperial forces, particularly in the Songhai Empire, which was engaged in ever-increasing wars on its boundaries, this is in the 1400s of the Common Era, when they meet Portuguese traders who are willing to trade guns, long arms, muskets, they're willing to trade guns for gold and salt and enslaved peoples, these two empires, the European empire, the Portuguese, and then the Spanish, and then the English, those two empires meet up on the coast of West Africa at the mouths of those same rivers in the slave ports of places like Correa off of Senegal. And the trade, that's when this sort of unholy global trade locks in, when humans are traded for goods and for wealth and their enslavement and their transport to the new world is used to generate additional wealth, which further reinforces the trade, which further reinforces this triangular route, which drives the engine of the trade in enslaved peoples for 380 years. Yeah. So one of the one of the temptations of global history is, of course, to then fall into this like, ah, oh, now I see. I see the simple thing that's driving everything. And I do think we need to remember that in each of these ports, in each of these moments, people are meeting in a sort of differentiated way, and it's not always the same. And then one side has the upper hand and one side doesn't. Yeah, and I would, I would absolutely agree. And I would extend that and say that one of the things that drives empire is technology. It's, it's really crude, but it's really true. Who's got the gun platform? Who's got the navigation aids? Who's got the resources? Who's got the long guns? Who's got the capacity? Who's got the need to render sugar into a more compressed, valuable commodity? So it's about differences. You know, it's competing empires competing on the basis of different types of technology. But there's another encounter that's happening here, and you alluded to it earlier, Tom, and I want to pull this out further, which is an encounter between two different versions, two different visions, I should say, of literacy, of what it means to know things about the world, right? And one of the remarkable things about oral oral tradition, which as I've suggested, holds sway in West African culture, in literally in the body and in the hereditary lineages of the Jeliat, the Jabate. Jabate is an old name attached to the Jelis that goes back centuries, or Conte or Cuyate, those are the surnames of families who are associated with the class of the praising or the Jeliat. Because their data is exceptionally precise, because they have developed the art of the memory the way that Thomas Aquinas taught to a very, very, very high level, they, because they, they are memory specialists, 
because this essential role they play in law and medicine and genealogy and history. That memory, that data is carried in the memory, even in the context, even in the, the brutal context of the hell ships of the Middle Passage and the very orality of that knowledge about spirituality, about history. It means that we can listen to Siddiqui Jabate sing an excerpt from the Sunjata epic that's at a minimum has traveled in the oral tradition for almost 500 years and have a reasonable degree of confidence that the historical events described in this very lengthy epic of which we heard an excerpt are accurate. Moreover, that when people who were inheritors of that kind of a cultural body of cultural knowledge carried in the memory when they find themselves in the holds of those slave ships in the Middle Passage, the scope and sophistication and complexity and resiliency of the memorized knowledge they carry survives the Middle Passage. So resilience is, is the resilience of memory is a key part of the story. I did want to ask you a question that I think our listeners would probably also have on their minds is that how is this possibly transported over 500 years? I think you've just given most of the answer there. So this is actually handed down. So that was a recording of a singer today to whom that epic would have been handed down one way or the other. You're absolutely right, Tom. You've brought a good degree of, of uh, historiographic rigor to this. The way that we can check or feel confident, it's the way we would check any primary source. We would check it against other sources. And the events that are accounted, that are recounted in the modern versions of the Sinjata epic, and some of the some portions of which are purely laudatory or or celebrating the, the majesty of the king, but some portions of which describe battles and campaigns and inheritances and who was descended from whom, we can check those against some of the written accounts, which maybe Europeans are more programmed to trust because these are written accounts from the Arab slave traders and the intellectuals like Ibn Farabi who traveled with them. And when Ibn Farabi agrees in his account of the Sunjata Empire with the epics, the praise singer's account of the Sunjata Empire, then we've engaged in a good piece of critical historiography. So I'm going to wheel in the comparison again with all of the cautions that I used before. So Luli's work fell out of the repertoire, people stopped performing it nearly as soon as he died, and certainly as soon as Louis XIV died some decades later, other composers came and wrote Tragédie en Musique, and it got to the point, I remember learning in graduate school, that they threw away Lully's performing materials and only kept the, the top voice and the bottom voice in the orchestra parts. You know, and the singers and the words, they kept all those things. Those were then documented, kept someplace, and so the middle parts... Sorry, we move from the very weighty, sublime, well, sublime in a in a horrible way. You know, the the weighty matter of the trade in enslaved people to some to to something a, a bit of a silly story about how how we know what Lully sounded like. Lully's orchestra was in five parts and had a a top part, a treble part, and then a bass part. And in the middle, there were three viola parts in principle, and they were actually played by not violin sized, so slightly larger than violins. There was a sort of a smaller viola and then a middle one, then a big one. There were five, so it was a five part. Thing And those three middle parts got thrown away because they weren't regarded as that terribly important. And so when we play Ludi today, in the most cases, we have to reconstruct the middle parts because they've been lost. Preserving the stories of sovereignty and kingly power and the divine right of kings wasn't as important in a way as it seems like these stories you're speaking of were. 
our listeners that we're working historians, and so we are endlessly engaged in our own research or the research that we admire and seek to emulate. We're endlessly engaged in examining available data, available residing, remaining evidence, and in seeking to tease out unclarities, or particularly, I always tell my own students, you know, look for the contradictions. There's the expected and the expected and the expected in the patterns of history, mm-hmm. the recurrent mm-hmm. patterns of how of how how the kings of France reinscribed their musical empires, right? And then there's a break in the pattern. Well, why is there a break in the pattern? And one of the things that I think we're hoping to do both with the big book and also with this podcast is to provide space to let previously silenced or erased, or in the case of the middle violin parts in a Lully opera, viola parts. Viola parts. I beg your pardon. Viola parts. Our our listeners will all be able to look forward to a future account of Tom Irvine playing viola on the recording of Lully that we hear. Oh, now you've outed me, Chris. Yes, it's true, listeners. In a previous life, I was a professional musician, and I'm actually playing on that recording. That probably was not the first time that you've ever played Lily, but it is preserved in a data source. Yes, indeed, digitally. The first time that I ever encountered Sunjata was when the anthropologist Charles Bird asked me to accompany him in a performance of an excerpt of Sunjata mm. in the Mande language and said, go listen to these recordings of the Jabates and figure out how to do on guitar what they're doing on Cora. And so maybe the place that I would take us as we decrescendo toward the close of this episode, which I've quite enjoyed, is to say there's always more to be heard. You've been listening to Sounding History. Keep in touch. Whether you're a music lover, history enthusiast, student, or just plain interested, we'd love to hear what you think. Contact us at soundinghistorypodcast.com, where you can also sign up for our newsletter and check out all the show notes. And follow us on Instagram at Sounding History Podcast and Twitter at Sounding History. We look forward to hearing your thoughts, questions, and suggestions. And if you like what we're doing, we'd so appreciate it if you'd leave us a review to help other folks find the show. And finally, if you're a new listener and want to learn more about who we are and the ongoing book project that inspired the podcast, check out episode one. Sounding History is funded by grants from the University of Southampton Faculty of the Arts and Humanities and by Texas Tech University. Production by Seedpod Sound at seedpodsound.com. In our next episode... We'll listen together to two innovators in modern music technology. The film star Grace Chang, whose Mandarin language songs powered a new wave of Hong Kong cinema in the 1960s, and the bluesman Robert Johnson, whose recording innovations in the 1930s changed music history forever. I'm Tom. And I'm Chris. Until next time.